Welcome to episode 37, Introduction of Motivational Interviewing for the Treatment of Addictive Disorders by Robert Scholes, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, everyone. My name is Robert Scholes, and I want to thank Clearly Clinical for inviting me to talk today with you about motivational interviewing. Just by way of uh, introduction, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and why this topic is uh, so close to my heart, uh, to my work, um, and, and really, frankly, connected a lot to my identity as a professional and as a, just as a person in general. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional clinical counselor uh, here in California and also a licensed uh, counselor in the state of Arizona. And I've been practicing for about 25 years. Uh, I've worked with a number of, uh, I think, unique uh, clinical populations. I started my career out in community mental health, uh, which introduced me to the importance of uh, advocacy for both victims and those who had uh, committed some pretty challenging and uh, horrific offenses in the criminal justice system. So my work with victims of sexual abuse actually moved me into working with those who had offended uh, sexual abuse. So I spent a, almost a decade of my career working with those who were either on probation, parole, in the criminal justice system. A lot of that work was with juveniles, uh, but also had considerable work with adults. Uh, also spent another decade of my career in university mental health. And... A good bit of my work there was uh, a continuation in some ways of my previous work where I was working with, with young adults who were not necessarily interested in coming into treatment, but because of something, some violation at the university or some uh, unforeseen situation uh, where a significant mental health crisis had occurred, I was involved in their care. Um, more recently, I've, I've been directing a pretty large outpatient uh, program here in California um, and, and really now focusing primarily on my work as a trainer and in my private practice. I think if there's some themes that run through my work that are related to the topic today is, uh, one, I... I, I Early on in my career, I think I was looking for something that really, an identity professionally, that was congruent with who I was and that really fit for me. Uh, secondly, I, as I've mentioned, uh, much of my clinical work has been with people who aren't necessarily, when they enter the room the first few times, interested in, in changing or actually in being in treatment at all. And I needed to learn pretty quickly how to navigate, connect with, um, and hopefully shift that perspective uh, early on in the treatment process. Another theme of my work has been, although I've worked with many women in private practice over the years, but, but I, I took up a special interest in understanding maybe some of the unique characteristics of working with men and boys and some of the challenges that come with that population uh, as they're related to some of the um, difficulties that men and boys have in seeking out help um, and being open to ideas about how they might better their situation in life. So with that said, um, motivational interviewing has been with me uh, for over 20 years. I, I, I think I always tell the story 
uh, being thrust into an adolescent uh, sex offender group would be the best way to describe it. But I was asked by my uh, one of my directors, they had an opening for an aftercare group. And like any 20 something uh, newly licensed person, I said, sure, why not? And I, I recall thinking, okay, I've, I've run groups before, I can do this, but this was a different group. And, and this was actually even an aftercare group. So these were young men who had been in treatment for a while, but, but I quickly realized that uh, they were challenging and they were still, some of them were still struggling with, you know, how much do I really need to work on my issues? Uh, why do I need to be here? I'm only here because probation has me here. And so I had to very quickly kind of figure out how do I how do I get in here and and didn't have the skills frankly um, early on to know what to do with with those clients so um, my early supervisors really um, introduced me to motivational interviewing and then really I was fortunate in some of my later work in that the forensic area uh, that I had the opportunity to receive some advanced training pretty early on and begin to learn to practice the skills along the way. So my goals for this time with you today is to provide you really an introduction to the, the philosophy um, and, and the really basic um, underlying principles that are involved in motivational interviewing. And I want to talk with you about what are, what are referred to as the four processes uh, of motivational interviewing and why they're, they're so important. Um, as part of this discussion, I'm going to spend a, a sig pretty significant amount of time really just kind of talking about what I refer to and what MI refers to as the spirit of motivational interviewing, because I, I think we can get into some of the more skill-based conversations and you would walk away and you would know some content however not having sort of the underlying uh, sort of personality of MI down uh, they would fall flat and I don't think they would be as effective if you took and you ran with them if you didn't have a really good understanding of the spirit of it and so I'm going to spend a good bit of time talking about that here at the beginning. So the first area I want to spend some time talking about is, is just giving you a basic understanding of what is motivational interviewing. And I'm going to, just for the sake of time, I, from here forward, I'm going to refer to motivational interviewing as MI, which I think you oftentimes will hear people discuss when, when having conversations about this topic. So there's lots of definitions about MI, and, and we're gonna kind of take apart some of those pieces because they're all, just, just even, there's so many different phrases that describe it well that are, that we then unpack as we start to talk about the theory and practice of MI. But from a basic standpoint, MI is a collaborative, person-centered form of guiding to elicit or strengthen motivation for change. Now, it's not a long definition I just read to you, but each of those pieces is so important. It's collaborative in the sense that it is not about me as the expert telling my client what to do. It's not about... Uh, me coming up with a prescribed set of solutions or a, uh, a list of topics we're gonna to cover in an order that uh, fits my needs. It's really about the client. And it's interesting when I, when I reflect on this, uh, that oftentimes, especially when working with clients who are coming to us uh, because they have a substance abuse problem, or they have a violence problem, or they have some other issue that either got them in trouble or 
got them into treatment as sort of the primary thing that they may not necessarily be interested in talking about that topic right away. And so that's the collaborative piece that I think some clinicians struggle with early on because they try to figure out, well, wait a minute, this guy's coming into treatment because he is a sex offender. And, but he doesn't want to talk about that, but he is willing to talk about all the problems in his relationships. Is that okay? From an MI perspective, it actually is not only okay, it may be the important path and entry point that will allow that client to begin to feel safe in treatment and begin to feel like they can trust us as practitioners. For the substance abusing client, they may not be willing to talk about the substance abuse, but they're willing to talk about the history of broken relationships, the problems in their work, things that are probably related to their substance abuse problem, but maybe not necessarily the substance abuse specific things that brought them into our care. So that's the collaborative piece. The second part there is the person-centered form of guiding. And there's a couple different parts there. Let's unpack a little bit. The person-centered part is that part when people see MI, they think, oh, wow, that is, that's very Rogerian. You know, Carl Rogers, you know, really emphasized the importance of good listening, of reflections, of not asking too many questions, of letting the client guide the session. The other part to it, that another word I would add to it, uh, though, is there is a directional piece to MI and that we are working towards uh, helping the client make some changes. And I think that's the part that's a little different than sort of classic person-centered Rogerian counseling is that there is this directive piece that we are, we're tuning in to a client's interest in making changes in their life. The last part of the definition there was eliciting and strengthening motivation for change. The eliciting part is, and we'll talk more about this in in a few minutes, but it's really getting clients ideas on the table. It's really asking clients what they think, what they want to do. It's constantly asking them what they think of things we're presenting to them, um, encouraging them to disagree, um, really giving them a voice in the room. And the last part, strengthening motivation for change, is really just this idea that we recognize that people come into treatment not necessarily highly motivated for change. In fact, I would argue not just in our sort of mandated populations, but even in our private practice settings. Many times people are walking through the door with mixed intentions, whether it's a spouse that's told them they need to attend or a coworker who said something to them or they've had some sort of crisis but they themselves have not yet bought in. So it is our job from an MI perspective to do things in the room that will strengthen that motivation to change. Um, What MI isn't is it's not about waiting for people to fail, not waiting for their motivation to shift from some mysterious process, but we know now that there are things that you, me, as a practitioner can do to actually strengthen that motivation in the room. Second part of MI that's key is that much of what work we do is helping people explore and resolve ambivalence about making changes in their life. And we'll spend a good bit of time on this later in this session, but, that's a big part of MI. And it's also that, with that said, uh, appreciating that, that ambivalence is a fairly normal part of the change process. Finally, MI is not just a series of techniques, but a way of being with people that improves 
with considerable practice over time. And I can attest to this. I was, uh, like I've mentioned early on, I, I, I received some, you know, multi-day training early in my professional career over 20 years ago. And I thought practiced a lot of the skills throughout my time. Um, and then many years later, I wanted, was really getting into doing more training and people had asked me to do some training on MI and, and, and wanted to be more um, well-versed in, in, the, in the strategies as well as the training and, and so fell on to the, the training path of becoming a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which, which I am a member of. Um, but through that process, really had this sort of enlightenment about what I didn't know. And with the help of some more advanced training and hiring an MI coach, really had to begin to look at my work more closely. It was humbling. And yet also probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever done in my career because I improved. I got a lot better. As a result, my clients got better. They started reaching their um, more effectively. So it was an exciting time in my career. And, but one of the things we emphasize is it's not enough just to learn it. You have to practice it. You have to monitor your progress. And the cool thing is, is that there are ways that we'll talk about of ways to kind of look at what you're doing, how to begin to evaluate your work, how to code your work. So while I've given you the definition of MI, and we'll, we're going to come back and expand upon that, I, I want to talk for a few moments just about how MI began, as well as some theory uh, that is highly influential in understanding it more, as well as when to apply it. Dr. William Miller, out of the University of New Mexico, is the founder of MI and has been an amazing mentor and researcher in the field for um, several decades. Um, he was early in his career and back in the early 80s. And while on sabbatical, he had a number of projects, one of which was where he was asked to mentor some young psychologists about behavioral treatments for alcohol problems. And Dr. Miller, if you've spent any time with him, you quickly know that he is an, a, a very humble person, and his style is one that allows for lots of room for questions, uh, lots of rooms for collaboration. And as he was interviewing, or as he was training these young psychologists, they began to ask him some questions about his style of working with patients. And as he began to talk about his style, he quickly realized um, that there was more to it than straight behavioral therapy. And he realized that very possibly some of the things that were really helping his patients were not, in fact, the behavioral concepts or interventions, but were some of the ways in which he was interacting with and relating with the clients. Not that the behavioral therapy concepts were not important later on in treatment, but there were some things that were happening, especially in the early stages of treatment, that went well beyond behavioral therapy. And out of this emerged the first conceptual model and clinical guidelines for motivational interviewing. Since that recovery of really what Dr. Miller would start, which would start to become the MI theory, the model has developed, it's been revised several times as research has gone in and taken some of those early tenets and ideas that Dr. Miller had and has either uh, verified or um, helped the model evolve to where it is today. The interesting, what I think fascinating part of MI is that um, it is a process that appears to be simple and yet is very complex. And 
there's a reason for all the things that we'll be talking about today and why you do them the way you do them. And yet, as they become second nature for you, um, they really do feel comfortable. And they really allow you to be with your client and respond to your client, I think, in a very meaningful, different kind of way. Some of the tenets and underlying assumptions of MI are, are this. One is that motivation is a state, and I would argue is a dynamic state. It's a temporary condition, not a trait or a personality characteristic. So I know that early in my career, I, I heard about those resistant clients or those clients who were deniers, where we really personalized some of the behaviors we were seeing from our clients or attitudes we were hearing from our clients, which, quite frankly, I didn't find helpful then. And as I began to learn about MI and other more collaborative models of treatment, I um, it made more sense why they didn't really fit. The second assumption that's really important is, is this idea that resistance is not a force to be overcome, but it's actually a cue that we need to change strategies. Quite a novel concept, huh? For some, this is a difficult idea to wrap one's brain around. And yet, when we sit back and think about it, um, it does make sense. It, it it does sometimes strike the the helper as uh, feeling a little more overwhelmed because if in fact that's true, that resistance is not something to be overcome, that it really relies on the clinician to be listening for shifts in a client's motivation and be ready to begin to do something different. I always say, however, that's really what makes us different in many ways from, from the bartender, that we, we have that training to really be able to listen and hone in on and then use our skills to make necessary changes to keep a client engaged in the process. I would also add that that first word of that last assumption, resistance, is a word that has been all but eliminated in the motivational interviewing literature. The most recent revision of the model, um, it was really determined that that word, in many ways, is stigmatizing of, of a client behavior and that there may be some other ways to better describe when clients are getting stuck that are more compassionate and more welcoming, which I will introduce you to in later sessions that we'll be doing for this series. So with that said, if, if it's so important that we know really where a client is and be ready to change based on where they are, we probably need some ways in which we can think about the change process that will allow us to understand where our clients are. So <clears throat> I think there's another model I'm going to briefly introduce to you that fits really well at this point in our time together, and that's the stages of change model, sometimes referred to as the trans-theoretical model of change. Researchers Prochaska and Di Clemente are noted as the founders of this model. And I found this model particularly helpful. When answering the question, when do you use motivational interviewing? Now that answer really can be answered in a number of different ways because in fact, I find myself using motivational interviewing strategies and at its core, just the basic tenets of it probably with all my clients in most sessions. However, if you are a new clinician or new to MI and you're wondering, okay, so when can I take this out in for a test drive? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the stages of change model and when MI might be most relevant. We'll come back and reference it again later throughout this conversation and later ones too. 
But the stages of change model, I think the best way to begin to understand it is to ask yourself a very simple question. When was the last time you decided to make a change in a difficult area of your life? Maybe it was your patterns of exercise. Maybe it was your diet. Maybe it was who you're going to date. Maybe it was, are you going to floss your teeth every night? And as you reflect on that thing or that process or that behavior that you have attempted to change, I'm going to ask you just to think a little bit about how that process went. Was it a straight line and one day you decided, I'm going to do this, and the next day you had made the change, you were all in, and six months later you had sustained the change? Or were there some bumps in the road? For some of you, were there even times where you never actually even got to the change, but you spent a lot of time thinking about it? I always give my example of this as as my love and hate relationship with exercise. As a as a lifelong athlete, uh, being in shape has always been important to me, but I haven't always prioritized exercise throughout my professional career. And so I go through phases of it being relevant and not relevant, and helpful and not helpful. And yet, if we were really to begin to kind of look at my behavior, or maybe even your behavior, as it would look in the therapy room, one could really quickly say, wow, this guy is is not all in, or he's not really committed to the process, when in fact, the process of change is in fact a process. It is many steps on the way to actual change and maintenance of the behavior. And so the model really starts with people oftentimes being in pre-contemplation where they really have no intention of change. And this is where we see many people come through our doors because they come in because of a court, they come in because of a spouse, a friend, something has moved them into our offices and or they're just engaging in maybe a potentially destructive behavior without really any intention of doing it differently because in their mind, it makes sense. That is pre-contemplation. So for me, oftentimes, you know, I'm cruising along, I'm working hard, and I'm not really noticing any noticeable changes in my life. Exercise, while it is diminished, isn't causing me a lot of problems. However, the next stage of change is the stage of contemplation. And this is where we are aware, your clients are aware of a problem existing. However, there's really no commitment yet to action. And the hallmark of this stage is ambivalence. And we've all been there, right? So for me, the ambivalence is um, oftentimes raised when I go to my yearly physical. And I wait to get those ever so important numbers back from my cholesterol or other important indicators of my health. And I sit and we have the conversation about my numbers and I start to think about, oh man, you know, maybe I need to get back to exercise. My cholesterol level has snuck up a little bit. Pants are a little more snug than they've been in the past. Um, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, things are harder as you get older to get back into routines. So I contemplate, and I have my reasons for and reasons against, and that oftentimes is what we're working with, with ourselves and with our clients. They have legitimate reasons why they're not changing. It's, in some ways, the behavior where they, the behavior that exists, healthy or unhealthy, has some benefits. It has payoffs. And it's incredibly important that we, as psychotherapists and helpers of any type, provide space to have a client be able to talk about those things. Ignoring them oftentimes uh, makes a client feel quite invalidated. 
The other side of it is, is oftentimes there are those reasons for wanting to change. Contemplation, however, and the resolution of contemplation, while very important, is not enough. Hopefully, as we resolve their ambivalence, they begin to move from contemplation to preparation. And as they move from contemplation to preparation, they begin to kind of actually take note of a plan, which ultimately leads them into the, hopefully the action phase where they're actually making active modifications in their behavior. So for me, this happens at different points in, over my last 25 years of my career, where I will make a commitment. I will go and visit some gyms, I will arrive at a gym membership and I will start to go, sometimes more successfully than others. Probably my most successful stint in my professional career was a stretch where I had a good friend who was going to the gym with me. It was really helpful. And, and as I sit here talking about that, I think, wow, maybe that's what I need to do in order to do this again. But action gives way if we're continuing to work into maintenance. And maintenance is where we really begin to incorporate the behavior into our everyday life. And it becomes more permanent in nature. Okay. However, part of the change process also involves relapse. And this is something that we sometimes just don't want to talk about. And, however, is a very important part of our understanding about how people change. And while some clinicians quiver at talking with clients about this as part of the change process, I believe it's really important too. So many clients will not come back to us if they think that they're going to be shamed, yelled at, lectured if they relapse, rather than we, we let them know that preparing for the possibility of relapse is absolutely critical. So I've just given you a really brief overview of the model, and, and, and we'll probably go into it more in other sessions. But going back to the question of why and when do you use motivational interviewing? Well, if I had to pick, I think one of the most, two of the most important stages that we're using in my strategies in are the pre-contemplation and contemplation places in a, in a person's care. Um, I, I talk about a lot of times, these are the stages that really do set the foundation and how we work with people through these stages really does set the tone, I think, for long-term change. And, and even though sometimes people will give us lip service when they're in pre-contemplation and they will tell us, okay, because I don't want to get popped and have a probation violation, um, they aren't necessarily making changes because they want to. They're making them because they have to. And they're not making them for their own reasons, but because they're making them out of fear. And we are oftentimes argue that fear sometimes gets people to make a change in the short term, but oftentimes, more often than not, does not lead to long-term change. So thinking about what we're going to talk about throughout, I, I think as you think about the strategies, we, we think, and I'm going to encourage you to think about the strategies um, in our NMI as being particularly helpful in those earlier stages of change. Well, we know some research has shown that, that most people, um, approximately 80% of people that enter substance abuse treatment are either in the pre-contemplative or the contemplative stages of change. So even more important that we know how to work with people from that standpoint. So now that we, we've, we've talked a little bit about its origins, we've talked a little bit about the definition of it and when you might use it, um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into what it does as well as begin to talk about the processes of motivational interviewing and what we're doing there. Again, I will come back to this idea that MI is a simply complex set of strategies that we, we use with clients and so we're going to talk a little bit about more some of the specific nuances of it right now. We've talked about the collaborative nature of it, but I want to emphasize a little bit more the goal-oriented style of work that we do in MI. 
And we're paying particular attention to the language of change. What I mean by that is um, MI, while it appears to be very Rogerian and person-centered in nature, is really focusing in on and listening for, I like to say, tuning your ear for people's discussions or comments about change, however small they might be. A good example of this might be someone comes in and they've been referred for an alcohol problem and you can tell when they sit down in their chair they are not happy to be there and as they are angry and they talk about how everybody is overreacting they make a comment to you like most of the time my drinking is not a problem. I don't know what their problem is and why they're making a big deal out of it this time. I know when I've had too much to drink. That series of comments could be really taken a number of different ways. The clinician could be, well, you know, um, you know, your partner said they're really concerned about you. And, you know, they told me what happened the last time you drank, which would oftentimes lead to a quite defensive response. However, a more MI response would be something to the effect of um, you've given a lot of thought to your drinking. You... Um, have some ideas about sort of what okay drinking looks like. But I'm also hearing you have some ideas about like maybe when your drinking does cross the line and you, you know particularly what those incidents involve. And it might, you might even have some ideas about, you know, maybe some situations of when that's occurred and, um, and what might be different about those times. So hopefully as you, heard me talk there, what you heard is a lot of validation and acknowledgement, uh, a lot of support. We would refer to that as coming alongside, not agreeing with the other people's concerns. But I'm trying to hone in on any utterance of change. And, and what he or she did say was that there were times when he could see that it was a problem. And I want to learn more about that. And I want to get him talking about that. Ultimately, our goal is, whether it's with that client or any client, it's to really get their motivation up, get them interested in looking at something to change, and beginning to help them develop a commitment towards a goal that they can work with, that they can agree on, and really trying to understand what it is and what's the payoff for them in making that change. So for that particular client, and that is a client that I meet and talk with often. Um, oftentimes, incidents like throwing up or ending up in the ER or coming into work drunk or hungover, which leads to problems with their boss, are actual reasons or things they, they don't like about their drinking. And, of course, we then have to tie that in more to their personal motivators, such as their health such as they, they, they like their work, they care about their work, they have good relationships with their coworkers. And so we need to pull these things out and help connect them to the ultimate goal. So I want to lead in and, and talk now about the four processes in MI. And, and I think um, similar to the stages of change model, these processes um, are not necessarily always in order although I would argue that the, the first state process is, is critical throughout. Um, but the people kind of jump around. And, I, and while I didn't make a big deal about that stages of change model, people go back and forth a lot in terms of where they are in their change process. So similar to that, but different, and, and very MI-specific, are the four processes in MI. And we'll talk a little bit about these um, in depth as we move forward. The first step force process in MI is the process of engaging. And engaging is really another way to think about it. It is the core and the spirit of MI. I sometimes tell people this, and I, and I mean it, and I practice it. I try to practice it as best I can. People may not, and oftentimes will not, remember what you say to them. However, they will remember how you made them feel. They're going to remember 
Did I feel safe? Did I feel understood? Did they get me? And so this engaging part of MI is critical. And so when you hear early stage MI conversations, you will see an MI practitioner working very hard to help the person feel understood, validated, and just a feeling of acceptance and compassion in the room. As a way to kind of illustrate this, I, I like to ask people to think about um, a mentor in their life. So I'm gonna ask you to think for a second, whether you're in your car or in your house. Um, I want you, don't close your eyes if you're driving, but um, think about a person who had a huge impact on you, who was a teacher or mentor. And I want you to think a little bit about what made that person your favorite or an important person to you. So as you think about that, I want to tell you a little bit about one of mine. And it was one of my early supervisors named Don. And Don was a, an amazing teacher. Um, and he was creative. He was accepting. He was funny. He was challenging. Um, he was motivational. He really cared about me. And, and while there were definitely specific things I learned in my time with Don, one of the things I remember was that I never was scared to go talk to him. I was never concerned about asking a dumb question or um, talking about a case I was struggling with. He always met me in a place of acceptance. Now, let me not confuse, let me don't, let me not confuse the word ex, um, acceptance with agreement. Um, there were times, although he could he accepted me and he was just so warm, compassionate, but he would also challenge me in those moments or really strongly ask me to consider a different perspective and we talk about that. So when you think about the engaging phase, I'm going to ask you to think about the things that those people that were most important to you did. And that, in a sense, is engagement. And it's really that place of, of ultimate acceptance. So we'll talk about the spirit of motivational interviewing. And there are some, um, these really important kind of words to, 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 to capture the spirit, which I think occurs throughout, but especially in this engaging process. Um, one is this idea of partnership. And, you know, the idea of partnership is best, I think, understood just by the statement, if I'm working with a client and they're, they're sort of pushing back on um, wanting to change and, and really whether they want to do the change, where I might just make a statement to them, you know what, you're going to be the best judge of what's going to work for you. I'm not going to have the exact answer. You and I will figure it out together, but ultimately it's going to be your call. Okay, that's the idea of partnership. The idea of walking alongside someone and really, you know, so that it's not this intimidating thing that I'm doing to them, but something we're doing together is really crucial. And I think part of that partnership in, in my standpoint is, and, and I'll ask you to just think about this, you know, part of partnership, I think for so many of our clients who come into treatment is they are, they're down and out. They have a lot going on and their level of confidence um, in themselves um, is often pretty low. And so our job is, would be, it would be quite easy to see deficits in our clients. And in fact, oftentimes the referral sources are telling them about all their deficits and problems. And yet, I think part of the engagement process is to see strength where others see, see deficits. So whereas, you know, we, we see that teenager who comes in and she's been kicked out of school for getting into three fights um, and, you know, and yet we find out, you know, that the fights are really about, you know, her having her friends backs rather than us dwelling on, you know, the fact that she's a belligerent delinquent teenager. It's really saying, you know what, you are a 
friend who really sticks up for her friends. You really have your friends' backs. And you are very committed to those um, that are close to you. So it's beginning to see strength. And, and that's an important part of the engagement process, I think, with many of our clients coming in for difficult issues like substance abuse um, or eating disorders um, or other things that they're really having a hard time giving up and that people around them just don't understand or have been hurt by. And so they oftentimes are in a, in a, in a, in a relational pattern with their loved ones that is, is not very rewarding. And in fact, it looks um, quite critical and shaming and blaming. And um, our job, I think, is to present a very different way of relating to them that then becomes quite attractive to them and makes them want to come back for more. So that's that engagement process, I think, that's important where we can see strengths and partner with them also, this level and in, in, in importance of acceptance um, that, you know what, I'm going to be here, whatever you decide to do. And I can give you an example recently of a client who we had a really challenging family session with. And um, the client, you know, the family had drawn their boundaries with the client. Um, the client had relapsed and the family had made a, I think, a very compassionate contract with the, the client to say, um, here's what we can do, um, here's what we can't do, here's what we can support, here's what we cannot support. After years in, of enabling and blaming, we really worked on creating a place of acceptance, but also acceptance with some boundaries and limits, but also that they were not going to withdraw their love to my client. And, and he got quite mad that they were drawing these boundaries that in fact he had agreed to himself too. And, um, you know, he looked at me and was pissed off at me and, um, and asked me, what do you think about all this? And, you know, come on, you know, you're my therapist and you're supposed to have my back. And, you know, at that point I just said, you know, look, um, I understand this is really difficult to hear. Um, that when you created this contract, you really didn't think it was going to come to this day where some of these, um, these next steps, these consequences, these realities were going to maybe come, you know, come to life. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Um, but what I will say is I'm here to help you whatever you decide to do and I'll be here with you. So it was creating this place of acceptance, and I, you know, and I was worried, to be honest with you, what was this client going to do? He stormed out of the session um, and threatened that he was done with treatment and that he wasn't going to use, he was going to go out and use. And um, a couple hours later, however, he gave me a call and said, you know what, I've settled down and uh, um, I, I hear what you guys are saying and I was out of control and I'll, I'll go back into treatment. And, and, and again, I, I think there were a number of factors that played a role in that, but I think my ability to be, be accepting of him was quite crucial. The next part of this spirit is the idea of compassion. And, you know, easier said than done. I, I think some clients are easier to be compassionate with than others. And I think that really depends on a number of factors. I think it depends on our own histories and those clients were that are that are similar to people that have caused us our own pain in our life um, or previous clients that have caused us a lot of pain. Um, so it, it's challenging in many ways to be compassionate with all clients. And I think there are places where if we really have things that are getting in the way of us being able to be compassionate, I think we have to ask ourselves whether we're the right person. Um, that if, that if through supervision and some training and introspection, we can't be compassionate that we, we need to move on. The last part of this is the, the evoking part of MI and that MI spirit. And the evoking part really is, is, is throughout the process of MI. And, but ultimately it comes down to us trying to evoke or elicit our clients' ideas about change, our clients' ideas about um, why they continue to do what they do, um, giving them some control in the process, 
asking their opinions, asking their input. It's absolutely critical that we that we do that. Um, you know, the MI spirit, there's a number of other ways think about it. And I, I talk about it sometimes as it's a drawing out process versus implanting the right ideas. And I think this is that evoking idea. It's what concerns you about your alcohol um, use versus you need to cut out the alcohol. It allows people the freedom not to change rather than pushing, pushing for commitment too quickly. It's the question of, you know, where are you at in your readiness to change on a scale of one to 10? How ready are you for this? Versus, you know what, if you delay getting sober, you know, you could die. More bad things are going to happen. It's this very collaborative way of working. What do you think you're going to do? Versus you've got to take your medications. Here's what we know. And the, and the, the counseling research is, is shown more and more evidence for this, but that direct persuasion is not an effective method for resolving ambivalence. The counseling style that tends to be most helpful is generally a more quiet and eliciting one. And, and really the quiet can be taken in a couple different ways. But one is that your clients should be talking more than you are. And when we do MI, and when we look at sessions that are more productive, and we look at clinicians who are more effective in their outcomes with clients, we see that those are the therapists that are talking less. And that when they are talking, they are paying very close attention to the kinds of comments and questions they're asking, and it's a much more eliciting approach. So we've spent a considerable part of our time talking about that engaging process in MI, and, and I've spent the time there during this session for a reason. Without it, it's really difficult to get to the other processes. When we think of engaging, I really do think about um, the therapeutic alliance that is so heavily documented in the psychological um, counseling research literature. Engaging is, is all about taking into consideration those components of the therapeutic alliance. You know, really, can you answer these questions? Does my client think I get them? Do we agree upon sort of what we're working on? Do we agree upon the ways in which we're going to work on those goals? And we know from the research that if you can answer, or your clients, more importantly, answer those questions positively, you're much more likely to have a stronger alliance. You're much more likely to have them engaged in the treatment process. Um, what we know is that it is critical and that within the first one to three sessions, clients are making decisions about whether they will work with us. And so it's critical for us as we're in this engaging process that we're getting feedback from our clients. I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with uh, Scott Miller and others' uh, model of feedback-informed treatment that utilizes regular feedback session to session about not only how are things going in terms of our treatment goals, but how are things going in the Alliance. Uh, their research shows uh, a really strong connection between uh, clinicians who can effectively maintain high levels of therapeutic alliance and positive outcomes in treatment down the road. So engaging is important, but engaging isn't all that MI is. And, and I do think some people think MI stops with engagement and that if we listen well, we're doing MI and that's not MI. <laughs> that's, that's called good basic therapy, but it goes beyond that. And so let me talk a little bit about some of the other phases, which we will get into more in some later uh, talks here at Clearly Clinical. The second process is that of focusing. So once we have our clients engaged, they trust us, they are in a sense, they've gotten in the car, 
um, and we're, we're driving together on the journey of change, they, it's important at some point we begin to get a focus. As I alluded to early on, sometimes it may not be the focus in particular that brought them into treatment. I would argue that any change or movement towards change in the therapeutic relationship is a good one. Um, not that we ignore the other things, but I don't know about you, but I've had many clients who come into treatment, not mandated treatment, not alcohol treatment, but they come in sort of with a small issue. And they come in and they talk about a recent breakup. And that's what they tell me they want to talk about, and that's why they're coming to treatment. And I, as their clinician, stay with them, and we talk about that. And, you know, at the end of a couple sessions, things seem like they're better. They seem like they're in a better place. And, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm beginning to think about, well, you know, maybe, maybe this, is, this is what they needed, and I don't know whether they're going to continue. And then sometimes there's that pause that, probably many of you have experienced where they begin to say, well, you know, that was one thing, but, you know, there's also some other stuff that I wanted to talk about. And I think of many clients, I think of one in particular who, after a few sessions of talking about some academic problems, um, launched into her long history of childhood sexual abuse and was a client of mine for several years. But I think two things I learned from cases like that. Number one, important to focus and help people feel like they're getting something out of the therapeutic process. And for that client, her coming up with some strategies, focusing in developing a plan, which is later on here, was important for her trusting me to go to something deeper. Engaging, focusing. The third process in MI is evoking. And really, this is where we are really just trying what's worked, what hasn't worked, their ideas about change, their confidence, um, their readiness to change. But it's really about not including the client in the process and being open to the things that will work and not work. That is evoking. And that happens really throughout, I think, in my conversations. So, so effective MI practitioners are constantly checking in with their clients and getting feedback along the way about whether things are not working. Then and only then do we get to a planning phase of MI. And really the planning comes out of the engaging, focusing, and evoking. And so without those things, um, I think a premature move to planning without those things oftentimes lands very flat. And I think these are the cases where we see clients, we, 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 we think they're ready for change, we think they're ready to actually um, enact change, but they come back the next session, they haven't done what they said they were going to do, or they don't come back because we've in some way um, really prescribed um, an intervention or done an intervention that was not consistent with where they were in the process of change or we missed pieces of the MI process along the way. So this was a brief introduction to MI. Um, I hope it was helpful. I hope by just understanding uh, from a definition standpoint what MI is, where it came from, how it's evolved, where it may fit in your practice with the kind of clients you work with, uh, the importance of appreciating the stage of change people are in and how we need to work differently with people in different stages of change. Um, and most importantly, that some of those tenets of the spirit of motivational interviewing really stick with you, that the importance of partnership and collaboration and compassion. And if you can fill the room with those things and you can build up a very strong, engaging environment with your client, MI can happen. And hope enters the room as we, we begin to plant some of those, those seeds um, early in the treatment process. Thank you so much. And I, I hope you come back for later uh, trainings on motivational interviewing. Thank you. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.